0: men. You can have a seat. Kids, you can be dismissed. Mars Hill, it's good to see you this morning. We are celebrating Memorial Day this weekend, and before we get into our text, we just want to say to those of you who have served and sacrificed, we appreciate your service and your sacrifice. Let's give them a hand. Let's thank them. <laughs> you may not have felt like it, but you are a parable to all of us, those of you who served and sacrificed. You're a parable of Jesus who came to to serve, to seek and save the lost, to be a ransom for many and not to be served. And so that is a a picture for all of us to learn from. We appreciate your service and your sacrifice and also the picture that you display for us. We are in Habakkuk. We're in chapter 1. This morning we're gonna be looking at verses 5 to 11. And I got carried away a little bit last week with verses one to four. And I made the Mars Hill Kids Ministry cry out with Habakkuk, How long, O oh Lord? <laughs> violence, violence, everywhere, destruction. I'm surrounded by it. That's what all of them were cr- screaming last week. No guarantees it won't happen again. We're in an amazing text this morning. It is so rich, and the whole book is just so rich, and there's just so many layers to this, this book, and it's so powerful, and there's so much that goes backwards in the Bible and forwards in the text and in the scriptures, and it is really true that all of this is written for our instruction and our benefit and our growth and, and training in righteousness, and so as we looked last week, we looked through one, uh, verses 1 to 4, we learned that, that even though we can't always know what God is doing, we can know that he is faithful and we do know that everything he has ever done has been faithful and good for us for his glory and for our good and for his grace and this week we're going to see that even though we don't always see what he's doing we do know that he hears us and we do know that he's working and those twin truths are so essential and so necessary and they cannot be divided They can't be divided anywhere in the the scriptures and we have to hold them tightly. He hears. Even though I don't know what he's doing, even though I don't understand it, he hears, he sees, he knows. And simultaneously he is working, he's on the throne as we were singing all of the songs we just sang about. He's on the throne, he's doing a work even in this moment, even in the midst of my pain and suffering. This morning we're going to look at the those twin truths in the text. The first is the comforting answer that God gives here. We're going to see that in verse 5. It's in the words, but it's also just in the fact that he answers. And then we're going to see the the shocking answer that he gives, really in verses 6 to 11. It's a display of his shocking power. It's a display of his shocking response to these circumstances. And then that's going to lead us and remind us when you circle back to the ultimate answer that that God provides in the scriptures. And so let's just jump right in. Let's look at his comforting answer here in verse 5. When we study Psalms of Lament, I mentioned Mark Vrograpp's book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy last week, and it's an excellent book on all of the Psalms of Lament and really just lament in general. What is lament? And it's a missing piece in our prayers. And as you study the Psalms of Lament, there's just dozens and dozens of them you begin to realize that the psalmist, when he cries out, when he pleads to God, laments to God, he rarely gets an answer. There's rarely a response. Even in Lamentations, in the the famous passage in chapter 3, when when Jeremiah, the prophet, is lamenting all that God has done and leading his people into Babylon, into exile. He says over 20 times, he did this, he did this, he did this. And then he says, but I will recall the psalmist and Jeremiah and all of the other laments that we read in scriptures. They often what they do is they they lament, they pour out, but they cling to and rehearse truth. And that leads them then to resolve. God is faithful and they will remember all of his past faithful ways, but they rarely receive a response. And what's shocking here in the text, in verse 5, is that Habakkuk gets a response from God. Not just in this one text, but twice he gets a response from God in this book. And it's amazing. It's startling. It's, it's encouraging. It's comforting. And it's intended to give us courage as well. So, so first, what do we see in his response? God hears. God hears. He says, look, in verse 5, among the nations, and see, wonder, and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you will would not believe if told. What we need to key in on, and we just glance right over it, are the words look and see. Look and see. Hear Habakkuk's lament in verse 3. Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? God is using Habakkuk's own words in responding to him. He has heard Habakkuk's specific words Specific prayer, specific lament, he has heard, he has seen, he is fully aware of Habakkuk's situation, and he's responding specifically to Habakkuk. He hears our cries and our pleas and our lament. If you advance further, we'll see it later in chapter 2, in the latter half of chapter 2, he's going to issue, God's going to issue five woes over these evil people that are coming. In other words, he's pronouncing, announcing that Babylon's already defeated. But when he does it, all five of these woes, he announces the injustice that that the Babylonians are going to perpetrate. And he's also announcing specific injustices that Habakkuk is general about in verses 1 to 4. In other words, what Habakkuk laments generally about in those first four verses, God answers specifically. Within meticulous specificity of what Habakkuk says. That means God hears. He knows. It's another way we see that he hears Habakkuk's lament and thereby the people's. He knows our specific circumstances. He knows our specific cries. Our specific voice. Our specific needs. He hears them. He knows them. He sees. That's intended to lift our hearts and give us comfort. This is encouraging. But secondly, he is also working. He says in verse 5b, for I am doing a work. I'm doing a doing is what it literally means. I'm doing something. I'm working. It's a present, active, continuous phrase, which means I have been doing something. Long before you ever knew it, long before you ever perceived it, I am doing something, even though you can't see it and understand it. And I will be doing something. He is, I am. He, he was, he is, and he always will be. So he, is, he was working, he is working, and he will always be working. There's never a day that God is not on the throne. He is fully aware, fully sees your specific needs, my specific cries, hears our voice, there's never a day he's also not working. There's never a day that he's not on the throne. I am doing. So these two twin truths are intended to give comfort, but also courage and hope. Look and see shows us he hears, which means he cares and he loves us. He's not so distant and aloof that he does not know who we are and what we're walking through. That's comforting. But he's also not so small that he can't do something about it. Do you hear that, church? He is also infinite. He is working. He is on the throne. He has the power to act, and he is acting. Why is this so important for Habakkuk, and why is this so important for us today? This shatters what is often called the argument from evil against God. It's a modern argument. It, it's not, it wasn't articulated in, in recent days. It was actually articulated by Epicurus before Jesus ever lived. So, Three hundred years before he ever lived, he, he made this argument. He, he, he's, he's attributed with formalizing this argument. And today, this argument is the argument many use against god for a reason to disbelieve god or to walk away from god and the argument is essentially this is or if god is willing to do something about evil willing to do something about evil but unable then he's not powerful and he's not god and simultaneously the other half of the argument is if he's able but unwilling then he's powerful, but he's unloving. He's not worth worshiping. In both cases, he's not powerful and he's not loving. He's not God and he's not worth worshiping. That's the argument from evil against God. But what does in just one little verse in the whole of the Bible, in just verse 5, teach us? No, he is infinitely powerful on the throne, has been working, is working, and will be working. And simultaneously, intimately near to you and I, he knows our cries, loves us, and comes to our rescue. It shatters that argument. So in other words, immediately what we see here is this is not a reason to walk away from God. We ought to draw near to him. Though we can't understand it, he does hear. He does love. And though we can't understand it, he is working. And whatever in the midst of whatever suffering we may experience, and specifically in this, this instance, this is intended, intended to, to give us comfort and, and, to, and to give us courage. What profound good news Our hearts may cry out in the midst of our own suffering. Everything is hopeless. Our hearts may cry out in the middle of our own suffering. He's so far beyond and, and infinite. He doesn't even know me. He doesn't know my name. He doesn't know my needs. He doesn't care about me. Our hearts may cry out. He's so near. He's so loving. He's so gracious. But he's just not powerful. He can't do anything about it. In the words of one of my ministry heroes who just passed away, we... Though our hearts may cry out, everything is hopeless, we should argue back. We should take our hearts in hand, and we should bring them to the truth. And we should bring the truth to our hearts, and we should argue back. We should see what the Word teaches us, which it teaches us that He is high and lifted up. He is holy and sovereign over everything. He is God, and He loves me. And he hears and he's near. And so we argue back with the truth of Habakkuk 1.5. We argue back with with Lamentations 3, 22 to 23. Even though I don't see what's going on, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Never. There's never a day that his love ceases. His mercies come never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We argue back, Psalm thirty-four, eighteen: The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. We argue back, Psalm sixty-nine, thirty-three: He hears the needy and does not despise his own people. Psalm one forty-seven, three: We present to our heart. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Lift your eyes. This is what he's doing here. He's saying, Habakkuk, I know your circumstances. I know that your eyes are on your circumstances. I know your people's eyes are on their circumstances. I know that your eyes are right here, right now, but lift your eyes to me, the sovereign God of the universe who loves you and cares for you, who knows your name and knows your cries and is near. This is wonderful and it's comforting, but it's also shocking What he says, and especially what he says beginning in verse 6 all the way down to verse 11, and that's our second point that we need to meditate on these verses, and it's profound, and it's thick, and there's layer upon layer here. This answer that God provides him is shocking. He says in verse 5, Look among the nations, see, wonder, be astounded. Those four imperative words are intended to be words that clap, that, that catch our attention. Listen, look at what I'm doing. Look at your own heart in the midst of what I'm doing. They're intended to, to be a thunderclap to capture our attention. Four words that are repetitive, that, that say, look, see, wonder, be astounded. That's, a, that's an attention grab in the text. And God says, this word of astounded means to be, be utterly amazed Dumbfounded. And then he says, For I, for behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. And in verse five, back in verse five, he says, Look, see, wonder, be astounded. I'm doing a work in your day that you would not believe, even if told. It is so profound and so. So much bigger, even this prophet of God cannot and will not fully comprehend it. Take heart, believer. This prophet of God is being told by God, even if I described everything to you, you wouldn't even comprehend what I'm doing. It's so much bigger than this micro moment of your life. It's so much bigger than this micro moment of the life of of the people of God in Judea, it's so much bigger. I'm doing a work. And it's astounding and shocking. Now, at verse 5, every one of us, as a reader, Habakkuk, the people of Judea, they've lamented in verses 1 to 4, and now they've they've cried out, and now God speaks. He answers, look, and see, and wonder, and be astounded. For I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe... Every one of us, if we hadn't read ahead to verse 6, think the next statement is going to be salvation. It's going to be rescue. It's going to be good news. It's going to be grace. Look at what God's going to do. But that's not what they get. What they get is a shocking answer of judgment. Verses 6 down to 11 are are a shocking answer answer of judgment, what he announces in verse 6 down to 11 is the terrifying wrath of the Chaldeans, who, who are also known as the Babylonians, which is ultimately a testimony of God's wrath, which is telling us something out of the gate, that these people of Judea are not as innocent as they claim. This is God's wrath through the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, on his people, and so let's consider a few reasons this is shocking. It, it really should shock the senses here. It should capture attention. And maybe there's a variety of reasons that you would be shocked. I want us to look at out of a few reasons why this is shocking and then what's most shocking about this text. The first reason it's, it's shocking, I mean, the, this rapid rise of Babylon from nothing. The Chaldeans out of nothing. That, he, that he's going to take up a nation and historians say they rose to A superpower on the scene within 20 years. That he brought them out of nothing, and now they're a superpower, and they're going to—they're—they're gonna—they've already at this point they've crushed Assyria, the the capital city of Nineveh, that that, that Jonah is told to go as a prophet to and preach and, and call to repentance. They've crushed them. They've crushed. They're coming on Judah now. But that's, that's shocking, but that's not really all that shocking if we read the word. Job says in tra- chapter 12, verse 23, he makes nations great and he destroys them. He enlarges nations and leads them away. The Chaldeans is what's in modern day Iraq. They're, they're right over there on the Persian Gulf. That's the area where they came up from and they, they take this, this route north and then down south and they conquer everyone on their route. And it's shocking, but it's not that shocking if God is the one that raises up nations and brings them to nothing. So maybe it's the intensity of the judgment. That is certainly shocking in the text. The intensity. If if we read this text, verse 6 to 11 give us a vivid description of the ruthless character of Babylon. They are ruthless. Verse 6 tells us that they're a a bitter and hasty nation, that, that they're, people of, of, they're ruthless savages. They're they, they quick to destroy and take everything that's not their own. That means they're going to take land that, that's not their own. They're going to take people that don't belong to them. They're going to separate husbands from wives. They're going to separate parents from children. They're going to take people out of their land. They're going to take their homes. They're going to remove them and take them back with them to Chaldea. Verse 7 says they're terrifying. They're a lawless nation. We talked about it last week. Justice comes from their own heart. They're the determiners of right and wrong and justice. You think you've, you've suffered oppression? Wait till you suffer oppression at the hands of someone who has no law, who has no standards, who is a standard in and of themselves. That's what's being announced here. Verse 8 says they have every resource at their disposal and they will use them to carry out brutal and ferocious attacks. That violence is the air they breathe. Violence is what they delight in. They delight to steal, kill, and destroy. Verse 9 tells us that they're like a pack of wolves, endless in number and experts in terror. Verse 10 tells us that there is no nation, there is no king, there is no fortress that can stand in their way. They laugh. They laugh. Every king, every nation, every fortress is just a hiccup on the way to their victory. And then verse 11. They worship themselves. They boast in their own power. They think they are God. Everything in this text tells us this, 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 is, this is a brutal people, and this is an intense judgment. But again, that's not as shocking if we know the word. We saw Egypt try to decimate and kill and destroy all of the males in Israel. And then we see the, the plagues. They were brutal. And then we see God's judgment in the plagues. They were as fierce. So shocking, but not that's shocking. Then we see God involve, is involved here. Maybe that's shocking to us. That's some of, that's not all of what Habakkuk's really shocked by. That's an element that God is involved in sending this terror, this judgment. But again, if, if, we, if we read the scriptures, we know that God, he, he, he raised up the Assyrians, He called them, his in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5, the rod of his discipline to the northern tribe of Israel and and sent them down. So in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5, Assyria is a mechanism, a means, a tool, a rod in the hands of God to discipline his people. In Jeremiah 25, verse 9, God calls through Jeremiah, Babylon, who's coming to take the southern tribe, he calls them his servants. And then after they're removed and in exile in Babylon in Isaiah chapter 48, it, we're told that, that God chapter 44, God is going to send Cyrus, his shepherd, an unbelieving king, his shepherd, his anointed. He calls him his anointed to rescue the people of, of Judea and Israel out of bondage in Babylon and bring them back. So not the first time God is raised up foreign lands and sent them to discipline his people. So what's most shocking here? What seems to be most shocking, and we see it beginning in verse 12 and 13 in Habakkuk's response, what's most shocking is that God is sovereignly raising up a people who do not honor him, do not respect him, do not worship him to humble and sanctify a people who claim to do that. That is seemingly what Habakkuk is most surprised by. Most shocked by. That he's going to use the Gentiles. This Gentile nation that does not worship him. Respect him or revere him. And he's going to use them to humble his own people. He's Let that sit on you for a second. God is going to... To bring an unrighteous people to bring repentance to an unrepentant people. That's what Sh- what Habakkuk is most shocked by. He says it in, in, in 12 and 13, really in, in 13. He says, God, you, you, you are of purer eyes, purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly Look at traitors. Idly look means tolerate. Why do you tolerate traitors? Why do you tolerate traitors? Why do you tolerate traitors? And are silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Listen to Habakkuk's response because he's revealing something about his own heart and about the heart of the people of Judea. Why do you tolerate traitors? Why do you tolerate? Why, why do you tolerate? Why are you silent when the wicked surround and swallow up a man more righteous than he? What Habakkuk is revealing here is a skewed view of what makes a person, people righteous. What Habakkuk is essentially saying here is, God, God listen to what he's saying. God, we're we're bad. But we're not as bad as them. We're sinful. But we're not as sinful as them. What are you doing here? How can you do this? These people, they don't respect you. They don't revere your word. They, They don't honor you. They don't trust in your strength. They trust in their own strength. They don't obey or respect your word. They respect only their own. They're traitors. You mean just like you? In this moment, what God is doing is holding up a mirror to Habakkuk and to his people. A people who have God's word but do not respect it. A people who have God's presence but ignore it. A people who hear and have heard God's call to holiness and obedience, and yet all is violent and destructive. He's holding up a mirror to his people. In this moment, he's calling his people to repent. They think that they are righteous by their religious performance, they think that they are righteous. that they are set apart, that they are unique by something they have done instead of realizing they're righteous and set apart by something God has done. In other words, Israel, everything they are, everything they have, everything is all by God's grace, not by their own works, and they have missed it. And they think in this moment, and that has led them to compare themselves to someone more, which is exactly what we do when we begin to take in our own righteousness and hope in our own righteousness. As long as I'm better than the next guy. Look at them. As long as I'm not as bad as them, that's what we do. It's exactly what the Pharisees did in the New Testament. And Jesus told parable after parable, multiple times, to to Pharisees who... Luke chapter chapter 18. He he tells the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. And, And why does he tell it? Look at the context. It says because the Pharisee hoped in himself, trusted in himself, and condemned. Looked down upon others. It's the natural result when you skew righteousness. When you think your righteousness is by your own works, by your own efforts, by something you did, rather than what God did on your behalf. And in this moment... God is reminding them. He is humbling his people. Every single thing they have in in R is by grace. And they've totally forgotten this. And he's humbling them. And He's, he's humbling them using, even reminding them through Gentiles. Through Gentiles. He's using Gentiles to humble his people to bring them to repentance. Now how is he doing this in the text? It's, again, layer upon layer. It is so rich and so thick. What he's doing is his people who are unrepentant, he's calling them to repentance, he's humbling them and calling them to repentance, and even if it re- means bringing a nation out of nothing to possess lands that are not their own, to gather up captives like sand on the seashore, he will do it. Even if it means taking his own people who claim to worship him, but don't, even if it means bringing them to nothing and humbling them all the way back to where they began. How is this in the text? He says he's raising up Chaldeans. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 11 where Abraham comes from? He comes from Ur of the Chaldeans, great city Ur. He comes from Ur of the Chaldeans, Genesis chapter 11. In Genesis chapter 12, God promises to bless Abraham he promises to make him a great nation with a multitude of descendants that would bless the world, bless the nations. And how many will his, number, his descendants, how many will they number? They'll number as many as the stars in the sky. He takes them outside. Genesis chapter 15, Abraham's like, I don't have a son yet. You made this promise. How do I know you're going to be faithful? He takes Abraham outside and says, look at the stars. Can you number them? Abraham says, no. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham continues to ask, and God says, You will have descendants as numerous as the dust on the earth. And finally, in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham gets it, and and God speaks to Abraham and says, Your descendants will number as many as the sands on the seashore. So Abraham and the people of Israel, who were nothing who were not great in number, as Paul says in Romans and as it says in in Genesis, who came from nothing but by grace God intervened and, and, and created a people and then promised that they would be as numerous as the sands on the seashore, are now about to be wiped out by a people who come from nothing and come in, it says in the text, swooping in and taking up their captives as numerous as the sands on the seashore. It says it in Habakkuk chapter 1 verse 9. They come for violence and their face forward. They gather captives like sand. The people of God who are as numerous as sands on the seashore are about to be taken back to nothing because they will not repent. It's more. There's more in the text. In Habakkuk 1.6, it says they will come, the Babylonians, the Chaldeans, will rise up and come, and they will, take, they will seize dwellings not their own. In the Hebrew, it, means, it says they will take possessions not their own. Take possession, take possession, take possession. When Israel brought out of nothing, and then numerous, the sands on the seashore, and they were rescued out of Egypt... It says that they were walking through the lands. It says they came to a place called Mara, which is a place of bitter water. They wouldn't drink, and they grumbled against God. What is Babylon called? Mara, Mira in the text. It says they are a bitter and hasty nation. The bitter and hasty nation is about to gobble up the bitter, complaining people of God. And what does it say? It says that they will take them in... And, and they will come in and swoop and take lands not their own. Well, when in, in Deuteronomy 6, it says that when the people were entering into the promised land, they were promised to take possessions of lands not their own, vineyards not their own, everything not their own. This is a direct reminder. Remember, you came from nothing, and you were given everything, not by your works, but by grace. Deuteronomy 6, 10-12. And then lastly, it says in Habakkuk 1.8 that the Babylonian horsemen will come in from afar and they will fly in as an eagle swift to devour. So after the people came from nothing, were made more numerous than the uh, the sands on the seashore, but then were rescued out of Egypt, were provided even though they grumbled and they complained and given all of this possession that uh, that is not their own, Then it says in Deuteronomy chapter 28, if you will abide by my word, walk in response to my holiness and grace. Walk in response to the love that I've poured out on you. Respond. You will receive, it says in Deuteronomy 28, blessing upon blessing. You will receive grace upon grace. You will receive all of these things. They will outpace you. They will outnumber you. You will not be able to count how much blessing and grace will come on your life if you will walk in my way. But then it says, in Deuteronomy 28, 15, but if you will not obey, if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, your God, and be careful to keep his commandments, in verse 25 it says, the Lord will cause you to be defeated by your enemies, and then in verse 49 it says, the Lord will bring a nation from afar, from the end of the earth, swooping down like the eagle to devour what on earth here is happening? God has graciously created them out of nothing in Ur of Chaldea by his grace. He provided for them and multiplied them like sand on the seashore and he did this by his grace. And then when they were in bondage and slavery in Egypt, he rescued them by his grace. And then when they were walking through the desert, he provided for them manna and quail and everything else they needed, water from a rock. He provided meticulously for them by his grace." And he called them to walk and live out of a response to his grace. And now this people have rejected him and become treacherous towards him. They're unrepentant. They've disregarded his word. And he said, I will raise up another people to humble you. All of this is shocking, but in reality, none of this should be shocking to them that God is a sovereign God over the universe and is gracious and kind and loving should not be shocking to them. It should not be shocking to them that he could raise up a nation out of nothing. That's their story. It should not be shocking to them that he would provide meticulously at every step of the way. It should not be shocking to them that he would call his people to holiness And obedience. It should not be shocking that he would use a foreign nation, even Gentiles, to humble his own people. It should not be shocking. But it will be. And it is shocking to a people who've stopped saturating themselves in God's word, who've stopped rehearsing. The history of God and the revelation of God in his word. Who simply drag themselves into the temple, as Jeremiah said, we looked at Jeremiah 7 last week. They drag themselves into the temple, but they do not bring his word into their hearts. It will be shocking to a people who treat God's word so flippantly that they would take it and tear it in shreds. As as we're told the king did at this time, and then burn it into a fire. It would be shocking for a people who do not pass this word down to the next generation. That generation would be shocked by all that God's doing on the throne and in his care for his people, even to the point of bringing them to repentance. That people would begin to think God's holiness is irrelevant to their life. That people would begin to think that his holiness is outdated. It's it's passe. It's it's overrated. That people would begin to dismiss his grace as unnecessary. "Ah, It's there when I need it. That people would begin to abuse his grace. And that's exactly what they're doing. That people would be shocked by a sovereign God who would be silent in their sin and then bring a people to call them to repentance. This is us, as Habakkuk and the people of Judea are staring in the mirror of Babylon, we are staring into the mirror of Judea. We're staring into the middle in the mirror of these people. This activity that they're doing is what we so often do. We don't have an appetite for a God who sits sovereignly on the throne and rules meticulously at every turn. Why? Because we have not saturated ourselves in his presence, in his word and read it page after page. He shows us from the beginning, the very first words in the beginning, God created. He is the creator and maker and sovereign Lord of the universe. One reason we don't have an appetite for that is because we don't read it day after day and see it and hear it. One reason we cannot reconcile how he could be infinitely sovereign and control and power, have all the power to do everything in, in every situation and know everything and also reconcile that to how can he also be gracious is because we haven't saturated ourselves in his word. And seeing that every single thing he does is just and good and loving. This is why when we come to texts like this. This is why Habakkuk and all the people are surprised. This is why we get surprised. Wait, God's doing what? He's done this time after time and he's doing it again. He's working in human history for his glory and our good. Even though we can't see it, he hears. And even though we can't understand it, he is working. And everything he does is good and loving and kind. He's putting the people of Israel in their place. This, verses 6 to 11, is, a, is an announcement of God's sovereign holiness. This is a flex in the text. This is, this is Job 38. If you've read the the... the, the studied Job. You you know, in chapter 38, after all of his friends tell him, Job, it's because of your sin. And Job says, no, because there's different levels of suffering. Some is because of sin. That's what this text is. And some is, is not. And it's hard and it can't always be explained. And Job laments back to them. And finally, in chapter 38, God speaks to the friends and to Job and says, were you there when I created the heavens and the earth? Can you find your way to the starting point of the lightning bolt? Can you control Leviathan, the the, the, the giant? Can you do that? Can Can you control anything? What you know of me, God says, are but the fringes of my ways. Were you there when I cast the stars into the sky and numbered and named each one? What you know of me are that the fringes of my ways. Do you know what the fringes are? The fringes are the equivalent of that little plastic piece on the end of my shoelace. That's how much we understand of who God is. That's how much we comprehend of his holiness. That's how much we comprehend of his holiness and his grace. That's what he's reminding the people of Judea here. That's what he's reminding Habakkuk here. Everything you are is by grace. Everything you are is because of what I have done in your life. Repent. Bow before me. God is doing exactly what he said he would do. He is he's being faithful to his promise. If you will not obey, if you will not Keep my word, hide my word in your heart. If you will not do that, I will raise up another nation and they will come in and devour you like eagles and they will reduce you and take you back to their land from afar, back to Chaldea. And that's exactly what God does. In Jeremiah, it says that the, he, Babylon, Babylon came, surrounded the people and took them, conquered their land, destroyed the temple, destroyed everything, took them back to Chaldea, back to where they started. And that leads us to the third point, last point, God's ultimate answer. He humbled his people because he's holy. But he did not destroy them because he's loving. There in the midst of Chaldea, and you can read it in Jeremiah, specifically Jeremiah chapter 33, the people begin to lament. They begin to repent. They begin to... To confess God's holiness again. You are the sovereign creator and maker of the universe. You are the one that that controls all things. You are the one that's sovereign. You called us out of nothing. We were nothing and we would be nothing without you. It's all by grace. They begin to lament. They begin to repent. But then they begin in their lament to say all we see is desolation. Our home is desolated. Our people are desolated. Everything is destroyed. Everything they say in chapter 33 is a wasteland of desolation death and destruction and violence chapter 1 verse 1 to 4 they're lamenting like Habakkuk is lamenting they're bringing their cries to God and they're pouring it out to him and there in the bombed out ruin of their lives in the rubble they're asking God we see the promise of your holiness but what about the promise of your grace What about the promise of your love? What about the promise of your mercy? What about the promise you made to covenant with us and through us to send a king? And to always have a king on the throne of David, you made that promise to us, God. Where is that promise? How do we know that you'll be faithful to us? In Jeremiah 33, they're lamenting and they're pouring out and they're they're reminding God, they're reminding themselves and reminding God of the promise of His holiness and the promise of His grace. And they're confused because in the midst of their rub, the rubble of their lives, they don't see His love and His grace. They don't know what He's doing. And they fear. And they worry. And they're anxious. And they're crying in this moment. And in that moment, in Chaldea, where he first took Abraham out into the night sky and told him to look up at the stars and asked him, can you number the number of stars on the sea? I mean, the number of stars in the sky. And of course the answer is no. And then he says, you will have descendants as numerous as the the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore in that same place. He takes... Judea he takes the people of God back out in under the sky and points them up and in Jeremiah 33 he points them to the sun and he points them to the moon and he says can you break my covenant with that? Can you make the sun to stop rising or the moon to stop rising? And of course the answer is no. And then he says to his people then you have reason to know with sure and certain confidence, there will never be a day that David does not have a man on the throne. That there will never be a day when I'm not faithful to my promise to love you and care for you. If you can't break, make the sun and the moon to stop shining, then you can't break my faithfulness to you. Church. If you cannot make the sun to stop rising tomorrow, the the moon to stop rising tonight, if you cannot stop that, then you cannot doubt he will always be faithful to you. Always faithful to his promises. And in that moment, we begin to see, we begin to hear that God is faithful. Because when we fast forward to the New Testament, he provides a king. In the line of David. And what does that king come and do? He comes to swallow up evil. And how will he swallow it up? By being swallowed up by it. He will come and he is, sur- he is surrounded by the wicked. A man more righteous than anyone in this room and anyone who's ever lived. Is surrounded by the wicked. Suffers oppression. Suffers suffering. And why does he suffer suffering? To end suffering once and for all. To end death. He will be bruised and swallowed up at the hands of wicked men who worship themselves. He will will be bruised by one who thinks that he's God and loves and delights to steal, kill and destroy. But in suffering in that moment, he will gain the ultimate victory for you and I. We can't know, Habakkuk, what God is doing in this moment, Judea in this moment. We can't know what God is doing in the moments of our sufferings. But what we can know is that he does hear and he is working. He's on the throne and all of his works are good and just and loving for his glory and our grace. You are not forgotten. He hears you. You are not forsaken. He is working. How do I know, Neil? Look at the cross. Look at the cross. It's his answer to suffering. It's his answer. And how does Jesus suffer? He suffers at the hands of unbelievers. He's scooped up and gobbled up as though one is scooped up and gobbled up by an eagle and devoured. When we fast forward to Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 13, Paul's preaching to an unbelieving people, particularly to Jews. And he begins to remind them of all these promises we've rehearsed. And he quotes Habakkuk 1.5. He says in Acts 13.23, Through David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior. Through David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. And through him, this, this man, forgiveness of sins, is proclaimed to you. And then he says, Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about on you. And that's where he quotes Habakkuk 1.5. In other words, what he's saying is, to those who are unrepentant, do not miss God's offer of grace and mercy. If you do, you will face, you will be under the full wrath of the terrifying description of the Babylonians, which is a picture of God's wrath that will fall on you. But there's hope. God has provided another, a substitute, where this terrifying description if you read in verse 6 to 11 does not fall out on, fall on you it will not fall on you it will fall on him and that's what we read in revelation 14 thank god for the gospel in revelation 14 jesus takes in and drinks the full cup of god's wrath for you and i that's our hope that's our salvation That's the the good news of the glory of God working through all of this tragedy and misery and darkness and death and desolation and, and wasteland of sometimes what we feel is our own lives and sometimes what we read in these texts, it seems like God is silent and God is unable and unwilling to do anything, but he is, he has been, and he always will be doing a work. For his glory and our good and that's our hope is that your hope this morning do you have that hope in the midst of your darkness and your wasteland that he hears you that he's working believers if that is your hope are you banking on that are you living by that are you clinging to that are you rehearsing that to yourself I know it feels like he does not. It is that he's not listening, doesn't know, and he can't do anything about this. But I know for certain I can't break the, the a covenant with the sun and the moon. I can't make the sun to rise or to set or to stop. I can't do that. And therefore, he's always faithful. He is the one that controls the sun and the moon. And he is faithful. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. It is so rich and so thick and and just layer upon layer of just intricate working from times past, in times present, in times future to rescue us, to provide for us a Savior who will gobble up evil and wicked men and will protect us from the wrath, your wrath. By being gobbled up by them. Lord, it is so profound and so unbelievable. It's hard to even articulate. It feels like drinking from a straw out of a tsunami. Your word is that rich and beautiful. May we, Holy Spirit, take your word into our hearts and not be people who are shocked by your grace. And shocked by your sovereign control over everything. Heavenly Father. if there's anyone that doesn't have the confidence this morning that they could could stand under your holiness because of Jesus' protection and covering. May they repent and hope in Jesus as Paul warns and offers hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.